This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Lucy Ward, BT Sports co-commentator, and David Priest, the coach and columnist. If you're a football manager, beware the Ides of September. The first international break of the season is a traditional time for a panic-driven sacking. Several big names are under considerable pressure. It's the nature of the job whether you're in the Premier League or in League One like Joey Barton. More from a fascinating conversation with him a little later. First though, Brendan Rodgers and Leicester City. Now Lucy, not many managers survive six successive defeats, do they? No, they don't, Mike. And I think that um, I've thought for quite a while about Leicester, that there's something not quite right behind the scenes. I think that a lot of the time I did quite a lot of Leicester games towards the end of last season and and Brendan Rodgers was talking a lot about a refresh in the summer. We're refreshing it. We, we don't want the, the squad to be stale. And then nothing happened and nothing came from him and nothing really came from the club. And then they did the transfer activity was, you know, practically nil. They lost Fafana, which w- w- was massive. Schmeichel, who obviously is a, is a big leadership figure. And you need that refresh, even if it's a small one, just to keep the competitiveness of the squad. So, and he doesn't look happy. You, you know, we we we've seen Brendan Rodgers over the years, and it looks like it's come to a natural end. I think that's what has been in the last few weeks. That's for sure. So, David, do modern managers have a finite shelf life? You know, they have two or three years in charge, walk away, recycle their career somewhere else, perhaps with a little bit of compensation money as well. Yeah, it certainly seems to be the way, but <clears throat> I think also it's that that's even if you've been successful, and, and even then it's no guarantee. I mean, we've seen what's happened with, with like, so Thomas Tuchel and, and previous manager Chelsea who've won titles and and not lasted much longer. Chelsea are probably a, a great yardstick to use that's whether things are changing. You know, you see a lot of clubs that have seem to have things in the right order now. You know, you've got clubs like Brighton and Brentford who, who are showing the way and. And giving managers and, and the whole club a lot of more stability. So I think you know Graham Potter going to Chelsea. I think that's got to be the that, that's the the stick was to see if things are changing. But there's a multitude of things that can go into it. Like Lucy was saying about refreshing squads and make sure that they keep everything fresh. I think that's probably the the, the real key to it. But I think what what it is shown at, at the moment is certainly with likes of Brendan Rodgers that shown a real human side of to management as well. You can see that even though his team's playing well, you know that six two defeat the Spurs. They they played really well first half. This certainly look doesn't look like a, a team that's that's in need of a change of manager. But you can certainly see in his interviews after the game that's you know that the situation really isn't uh, isn't great for him. Mm. Do you think? Lucy, that the unique nature of this season will be a factor in an owner's decision-making. Perhaps some will calculate that it's not that long, actually, until we have the World Cup break. So maybe wait until then before making a, you know, obviously fundamental decision. Yeah, I think certainly there are times in the season where there's like a, a natural lull that owners think about change where they've got enough lead up time to the next game to, for the new manager to come in and, and have an effect and I think more so this season because of the World Cup and I think you might be right but because all the football is squashed up 
really. And there's a lot, particularly European games being played between, you know, the, the start of the season and the World Cup. It, it'll be difficult. So I, I think this international break and the World Cup will be a, an obvious thought. But I, I think in terms of sort of some of the managers, I think it's different for every manager that things, you know, Dave talks about there, but things can become stale even if you're successful. You know, you look at Bielsa at Leeds, you know, the closest club to me, and he did fantastic. But he, the one thing he didn't do was reinvent. And I think that's what the successful managers who keep being successful do. They, they sort of reinvent themselves, even if it's if it's slightly. If they don't do that, then the international breaks are, are a little bit ominous for some managers. Mm. And I suppose, David, there's also a almost a cultural choice to be made when the decision to change managers is taken. So if you take Leicester as a as an example, you know, everyone and his um, postman has been um, linked with that job now. You know, Rafa Benitez, people like that. Are you looking at, a, say, a, a cultural choice between a Sean Dice type of figure or perhaps someone like Thomas Frank, who's you know done well at a club I know you admire, which is Brentford? Yes, yeah, certainly. And I think that's a real decision for the club. You know, it's... We we speak about these clubs who who have a clear plan and and they know where they want to go and and, and to keep real stability in the club. So if they want to do that, then they have to you know go for a Brendan type Rogers manager, but somebody like I said, just just somebody with fresh ideas and, and a different voice and a different approach that can can get the best out of what is still a talented dressing room at Leicester. But again, again like I said, that's the decision for them to make and whether they want to go down another path. And for me, if they can look at two ways about it. They can look at, well, we need to survive this season and we need to make sure we do enough to stay up. So is there a manager that can do that for us? Or if we are going to have a change of manager, are we going to give him time to implement what he wants to do and take the club in a different direction? And whenever we talk about management, it's all, all about patience and about clarity of where clubs want to go. And if, if they've got that, then whichever direction they go into, it'll, it should go well for them. Yeah, well, when you talk about clarity and patience, you know, Brighton do come to mind, don't they, Lucy? Roberto De Zerbi, he's succeeding Graham Potter on a four-year contract. It does seem almost a like-for-like -like appointment. When you look at De Zerbi's background, his philosophy, it seems like a typically thoughtful appointment, this one. Yeah, I mean, we talked before that Brighton are clever. They look even more clever uh because of the way that some clubs conduct themselves. But obviously, succession planning in place. They have a squad of players. You know, they have a process that they go through. They bring in ones with potential and perhaps sell on. We've seen that happen. But what they do make sure is that, that they knew that at some point that Graham Potter would go, whether it's upwards or whether, you know, he, he was relieved of his duties, whatever that might happen. And we know that that can change in an instant. And, so many clubs that you see that have a squad full of players from that are three or four different managers players the best thing if you've got a squad of players that you're happy with as a as a club that you bring in a manager that can work with them and that's obviously what Brighton have done he's obviously the right tactical fit it's a continuation of the way that that they play and he's probably one of the best young managers in the world at the moment you know plays possession playing out from the back he hates the fact of a long ball because he thinks that's placing a bet that he probably won't come off. Low percentage football, plays across the pitch, counter press and all that sort of stuff. I, I think that that's obviously the way that Brighton are looking and, and that actually makes sense. It's, it, it's not... I think we've said it before, haven't we, on this, that Brighton look like an outlier because they make good decisions, but, you know, they're, they're probably sensible, common sense business decisions and... You know, when you've got a group of players that work for a certain manager, then rather than changing the majority of the group of players, then you bring a manager in that that works the same as the the last one. And well, we'll see what we what happens, but it's certainly a decision based on what they've got and and how they want to continue. Yeah, and I'm quite intrigued, um, David, by the whole you know nature of the man in terms of you know he does again remind me a little bit of Graham Potter in terms of he he had a pretty much a journeyman playing career I think he played for 13 clubs do people with that type of background do you think are they better suited to management possibly I mean I, you know you think about players backgrounds and I think of my own where you, you possibly think that's in quote-unquote unsuccessful players 
have to think about their game more. They have to think about how they can improve more. Maybe that's just a bit of a generalisation, a bit of a cliche, but but certainly when it comes to to, to Brighton and, and the replacement of Graham Potter, you know, they had a man with it who who had integrity, and they, and they've done the same with Deserby. You know, it's it's not just about how they play, the style of play, you know, formations, philosophy, etc. It, it's about the type of person they are, and you you, you look to see about even his time in in, in Shakhtar where. You know, he refused to leave Ukraine until all his staff and all his players had, had, were safe as well. And, yeah, like I said, you know, if you want a man to replace somebody like Graham Potter with integrity, he sounds like very much the right choice when it comes to character and personality. Yeah. Obviously, you know, managers deal with expectation. Expectation's probably at its height at Newcastle for obvious reasons. Five draws out of seven... Lucy, no win since the first day of the season. Is the pressure about to ramp up on Eddie Howe? I think now, as soon as Newcastle were were taken over and as soon as Newcastle had new owners, then all eyes were on Eddie Howe. And I think he's conducted himself really well. He's, I think that the the signings that they've brought in are horses for courses. They're, you know, they, they've taken a little step up. They've not gone for it for the, you know for a big jump in terms of the prices of players or the type of players, but you've got to win. And it, even more so there, the fans are, you know, we know what the fans are like at Newcastle. They're pleased to have their club back again. That's how they will feel. But, you know, Eddie Howe's got to win and, and he probably will have less patience afforded him than than quite a few a few others. But the problem they've got is that they're not scoring goals. I've seen them play. I saw them at, at Liverpool when I, uh, Liverpool got a... A last second winner and they did all right good game plan Isaac had scored the goals you know they'd done okay but in 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 sort of recent games they've not really got the goals and it's so important Callum Wilson not always fit but he can't keep going on with uh, not winning because the expectations are a lot higher mm. do you think David that there is almost a managerial food chain yeah I'm, I'm looking that there seems to be a bit of surprise that that Pochettino is considering going to Nice there's the usual sort of political nonsense going on at Bayern. You know, Nagelsmann's being criticised for his dress. Is that simply because Thomas Tuchel's turned up on the market? Someone like Eddie Howe, by definition, you know, a very good coach, but does he have that stardust? I suppose. I think that's the thing. I think you know, you, 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 you see people with stardust generally. You know, I think off the top of my head are the ones who are sort of have the bigger personalities and a little bit more entertaining on the sidelines and sort of a little bit more un- unstable. And I think it's probably a, it's, it's probably a time we sort of give a bit of credit to, to the quiet man and to the to the man who's more in control of his emotions. I think, that, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a sea change there with him. You know, you've seen, you've seen some of the, um, you know, talking about the Liverpool games, you know, how they... They they try to sort of lock up the game with um, if, if going down into a bit of time waste and maybe something that you wouldn't associate with a a nice man like Eddie Howe in inverted commas. But um, yeah, I I, I still think it's a, it's a solid start for them. But they'd probably be just to be disappointed by that. You know, likes drawn with Bournemouth, Palace, and Wolves. Who don't get me wrong that you know, especially Palace and Wolves, it'd be difficult size to beat. But it's if you've got any kind of ambition, you know, in which the owners clearly have, then they're going to want more from those types of games. If you're talking about a quiet man, Steve Cooper at Forest, he's got to get 23 new players into some sort of cohesive working unit, which is frankly extremely difficult. Lucy, do you think he's also going to be prey to the whims of a pretty volatile owner? You know, Evangelis Marinakis has basically shown little patience in his previous incarnation at Olympiacos. Yeah, I mean, Steve Cooper has done absolutely brilliantly. I mean, no one could ever take away from him what he's done with that Forest team. And, you know, he used a lot of loan signings last year. If I was a betting woman, I would bet that the majority of the last-minute signings that that, uh, Forest made, Cooper probably had no idea about or didn't particularly want. And there's actually nothing worse as a manager trying to sort of establish yourself in the Premier League and then you get given a few more signings just to sort of make up a squad. It's virtually impossible for him, I tell you. It's virtually, and, and if he doesn't survive 
the run of Forest and someone else comes in while these players are settled. It's a little bit unfair, isn't it? It's just the way football works. But Marianakis will not... He already thinks that Forest should be a top six. In his head, as an owner, he thinks that Forest, because of the history, should already be in the speaking with the top six. And I don't mean on the pitch, I mean off the pitch. And so that's where he thinks, and that's where his standards, you know, unrealistically are, where he judge is judging Steve Cooper by at the moment. So, on that respect, then he's got absolutely no chance because you, you, you know, you cannot. It's it's difficult to integrate players as it is without actually having to win games while you're doing it. And obviously, when they do start losing games, which they have done, then you have to keep confidence high. Then you've got the mixture of players within the squad who the squad players that are not getting a game, they start to get a little bit frosty and maybe cause a little bit of, of, of waves. And it just becomes, I've, I've seen it happen a number of times. It becomes very, very difficult for the manager. And, um, you know, he's he's got to get winning, but even then, you know, that I, I can't see the, the patience of the owner going on too long. And it's, it's sad really because of the story is unbelievable. You know, this time last year, Probably they were at the bottom of the championship, and now the fans are going, "Whoa, why is he? How come Cooper's doing this?" And yeah, Cooper actually got you there. Cooper got you there, and now he's being asked for to to solve a completely probably impossible puzzle. Yeah, is it a case, David, of almost you know a fundamental misunderstanding of what a club is and its you know in terms of its culture and its stature? You know, I'm thinking here also of Bournemouth are still looking for a manager. You know, they've got the prospective new American owner, Bill Foley, from the National Hockey League in the States. You know, what's his impact going to be? He's already talking about Bournemouth as like being at the centre of some sort of global multi-club model. That's got no relation to what Bournemouth Football Club actually is. No, and it's very much a case of sort of uh, getting ahead of yourself, you know, being before you've taken over the club. And I think that's... You you do have to recognise that football clubs in England aren't, or traditionally aren't, soulless franchises. They're not just commodities to be bought and sold and to make decisions on a whim about how you want to change things. There's a lot of history behind clubs and and you, you also have to look at the club and say, well, how far can I take this club? How far can I realistically build this club into? And... You know, it's all right having big aspirations and wanting to sort of take over the world with with a football club if that's what he wants to do and that, that's what his ideas are. But at the end of the day, there has to be a lot of realism in it as well. And and I think that rather than coming out with these grandiose ideas about multi-club franchises and, and 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 systems, you know, you have to realistically look at what the club is and sort of build it incrementally because it's 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 never built overnight everything that's Bournemouth is everything that Nottingham Forest is there's there's certainly forest steeped in history and of course you don't have to always go back to that and, and be and be chained to that history but also you you, you keep having to have a look back and and reference it and, and make sure that it's part of the future as well yeah, well, Bournemouth's interim manager, Gary O'Neill, is already been linked with Huddersfield on the basis of you know, three relatively good performances. Does that point up to you, Lucy, how haphazard management is, you know, especially in the championship, there where Cardiff have just sacked Steve Morrison for no real apparent reason, other than perhaps this desperation to get back in the Premier League? Yeah, that... It's cracking. I mean, I know Steve Morrison. And I, I know him well. I know, I know what type of player he was and what type of man he was when he, he was at Leeds. And and him and Gary O'Neill, I think what you can see with them is they obviously interact with the players very well. They're good on the training pitch. And I think what I noticed about Gary O'Neill is when they played Forest, he noticed that his team were struggling in the first half and he changed it. Most difficult thing for a, a manager or a head coach to do is watch a game recognise what's going wrong and, and make small tweaks. And that's what he did. And I think that that sort of thing is the what draws other clubs to him, not just the results. He obviously has a good reputation with the players. He obviously is good coaching-wise on the grass. But I do think things like making a change and outthinking your opposite manager, I think at that stage was Steve Cooper at Forrest. And he needs to take his chance. If Huddersfield say to him, you know, 
you come here, we'll do this, because Bournemouth doesn't look like it's quite stable at the moment. So you have to make a decision quickly and Gary O'Neill will, will know that. I think he's, he's batted away a lot of questions about his Bournemouth future because he probably knows somebody will come in and they'll have a manager in mind. So you have to make the jump and take your chance when you have. But both of those two seem to be quite impressive young coaches for me. Yeah, well, management is a relentless profession. Joey Barton is learning its harsh lessons in the lower leagues. Now, I came to know him pretty well when we worked on his autobiography. Whether you like him or loathe him, he's a compelling case study. Joe, well, thanks for joining us, first of all. I want to bring you back to your latter stages of your playing career when you were a senior pro at QPR. You went to Harry Redknapp, who was then the manager, and basically gave him the, you've lost the dressing room gaffer speech. And he said something to you, which has already stuck with me. When you sit in this chair, Joe, you'll know what I'm up against. Well, you are sitting in that chair now, aren't you? What are you up against? Yeah, I can, I can um, totally relate to, you know, it's kind of one of them where Harry's come along when I was at Fleetwood and came and spent a bit of uh, time on a match day with us and we laughed about that conversation and, and I can, you know, can totally relate to it. I was trying to help him as a player. I felt he'd really helped me, give me an opportunity to resurrect my kind of QPR career after I came back from Marseille. And I just thought sometimes being revolutionarily truthful with people is the only way you can move forward. And I just felt I had a duty to him to tell him the truth because it was slipping away from him. And as you rightly point out, he said, one day you'll be in this chair and, and you'll know you know, the, all the nuances of, of what we're trying to do. I don't know whether there was a, those exact words. <laughs> and I can totally relate to it. I, you know, there's so many moving parts to keeping the organism healthy and productive and moving forwards. Doesn't take much for it to get out of uh, kilter. And, you know, even when you've got it going really well, you've got to constantly uh, be tending to it. I, I, I always say to people, it, it's like gardening. You know, you get your flowers, you get everything in bloom, but, you know, the weeds still grow and, and they need to be taken out and they need to be taken out as, as and when they present themselves. You know, you don't maybe need to take them out every single day. Maybe there's a good time to take them out and fit them in there. But also sometimes, you know, you've got to dig plants up and sometimes you've got to cut plants back in order for other plants to flourish. And, and again, it's, it, it's constant. You know, it doesn't stop. It, it's a constant cycle. And if you don't take care of it, it can be overgrown and uh, overwhelming uh, very, very quickly. Mm. How do you think Joe Barton, the manager, would have dealt with Joe Barton, the player? <sighs> I think it'd have been a volatile relationship that way. <laughs> yeah. When I think back now, I was a student of the game, I always have been, and I thought I knew an awful lot. Like when, when I think back about the books, I used to say, oh, well, I'll sit up there and be off the touchline and disconnect from it. And then you do the job and you realise, actually, you can't do that. It might work in rugby, but it doesn't really work or it doesn't transmit in, in this sport. And that doesn't mean you won't move towards it. But when I look at how would I deal with myself, I think the way I deal with people in terms of I, I don't tend to have a manager-player relationship with them. I try to get on a level with them as a person, first and foremost. And I kind of use the management as a, as a tool in my toolkit for later on. But I always try and interact with the boys or the players as... You know, people I'd meet on the street or if I was a foreman on a building site, you know, if I was running the site, I'd go, you know, we're paying you to be a bricklayer. You know, you're mixing cement, like, what are you doing? You know, try to keep it as simple as I can for them. Thinking back to me as a player, I had a struggle with me as a player because I felt I knew everything. I felt I knew everything about the game and you couldn't, and, and, and it was very knowledgeable about my position. But the more intelligent you get, the less you realise that you know. You know, and, and, and that's a constant process for me. As I say, I was full of enthusiasm as a player, but it was all to do with, you know, a small segment of, of the game, you know, and that was, you know, my position or my role in the unit to our results on a match day. You're not thinking about all the other political factors and all the other things that can be coming across a manager's desk from day to day. And for me, it was a straightforward, if he's not playing well, get him out of the team. You know, because that's not helping us get a result. But as a manager, you go, well, this might be a player that we've got who's having a bad spell of form and we've got 
a four-year contract on him and you know we want to sell him as soon as we can and, and taking him out of the team is not going to you know get him through this and we, we've got to keep playing him through his funk so that we can get the good side of him and, and we can sell him at a profit you know that's the business side of it that I think players are protected from I think they're more aware of it now than they've ever been that it's a business but also they don't understand the complexity of the managing of the club of the business side of of the job as well as managing the team and managing the training it's so multifaceted I just don't think when you're a player you can comprehend that yeah there was, there was a, a brilliant book written on Bill Belichick called education of a coach okay what were the key elements of your education as a coach I kind of threw myself in at the deep end so I didn't come from coaching I obviously done my B license and my A license but I was still playing, I was still 27, I think, when I done my B licence, I think 29 when I done my A licence. So, and I stopped playing, I think, at 34. So, and you think, oh, I've got all these good, bad and indifferent references from coaches you work for and clubs you've been at, and you kind of think, you know, the rhythm of the way you want your week to look and building into a match. And then you get, you know, out of your comfort zone and you're actually doing it. And as I say, all these things that you had in your mind theoretically or, or based on practices you'd seen with other people, your experience of doing them alters you and you go, okay, well, I thought I'd do that, but actually that doesn't work and, and I'm actually going to have to do this to get a tune out of the boys. So for me, I knew I was going to have a unique experience because I think everyone's experience of it's unique, but I basically stopped playing, got banned for a year, nine months as it got shortened. So it was 18 months, originally nine months. Worked on the radio and in the media and observed football and theorised about you know what I might do. And then became a manager or head coach as it was known. I didn't do the coaching side of it. So I'd done me, as I say, I played and done me badges, but I actually hadn't done really that much coaching and none, no, you know, assistant manager or first team coach in a building. So I was climbing without ropes a little bit, but I, you know, I had Steve Black around me, I had some good people around me and, and I felt confident at the level I was at, which was Fleetwood in League One to do the job justice. So then start doing the job and then you're drawing down from all these good experiences of people and then I realise I'm becoming an imitation or a, or a lesser version of people I've, that have set a good example for me. Like who? Who are the examples? Even? Well, you know, there was elements of all the good coaches that I enjoyed working with. It was Kevin Keegan, you know, Ellie Bopp in France, Alan Pardew, obviously Sean Dyche was a big influence, Sam Allardyce. And you were also influenced by some of the coaches who maybe you didn't realise at the time. You know, they were maybe the best manager or coach you worked for, and I wouldn't do things that way. Sometimes as good of a lesson as I would do things that way. So you, you distill all of that at the back end of your playing career. And then, as I say, I would imagine you'd go into coaching position and you'd, again, explore that further as a coach and switching the playing mindset off. I kind of didn't have fast track right into the management, which gave me a, a kind of unique approach in terms of I pretty much went from playing to managing. I didn't do the coaching bit in the middle. Again, quickly adapted to get results for what I needed and that was not maybe how I thought it would go when I was thinking about it and adapted to survive because you know I read a great book by a fantastic author called uh, Living on the Volcano and, and he's again a resume, he's, <laughs> he's a good lad and then you realise you know it's it's completely different for every every club has a different challenge and you know the, the, I always imagine the coaching courses and the seminars that you go on to be the equivalent of you know, taking driving lessons and then finally you take your test. And obviously, once you get your your own car, you, you know, you do things slightly differently. You know, we're getting, as I say, I'm in a Fleetwood and I'm drawing down from all these experiences of, of good environments and, and obviously some not good environments or I won't do. And then I realised we got knocked out of the FA Cup by Wimbledon and I was playing 4-4-2 at the time, 4-3-3, 4-4-2. And I thought... I'm just going to be a lesser version of all the good coaches I've worked for. I'm not going to be, like, I need to find my own identity. What's a Joey Barton team going to look like? What's a culture of Joey Barton as the, the manager going to offer to people? Like, what are you going to sign up for? And we got knocked out of the FA Cup and I fleet with at the time. That was like the end of the world because your budget was pretty much tied up in that. And I'd gone from going, hope we get on a good cup run and I can get a few quid to invest in the group to, oh my God, I've got a cost cut now and fit. I, had to lo- I think I lost 13 players that January and brought one in. So I thought I was undermanned for what I had, and obviously the, the you know the owner's gone. No, no, this is a business, and I can't afford to do that now without the FA Cup and pay strings get drawn in accordingly. Well, when you spend most of your time where I spent it, no one really talks to you about pay strings. So you learn a different part of the profession, you know, managing a budget and working in them constraints. And then I remember going away and going, okay, what 
everything that doesn't require talent. Like, what's my syllabus for our players when they sign up? Not from you know December, January onwards, but next season when they sign up. What product am I offering to a 19, 20-year-old boy who's you know just at the start of his career? What am I gonna What am I gonna say if you come and sign for me? This is what will will show you. So I ended up spending a bit of time then really studying systems. But I wasn't studying from the playing aspect of how am I going to break that down? How am I going to stop that player playing as if I'm playing the game? I had my coach's hat on and my manager's hat on and I'm thinking about that from a more holistic of how are we going to approach that as a team? You know, What are we going to stand for? What are we going to negotiate on? What are we not going to negotiate on? And I spent a lot of time watching Man City, Liverpool, Tottenham, who for me at that time were the three big teams in, in, in the Premier League. All I, I tried to find commonalities between them and obviously strengths and weaknesses I think it was self-evident where the strengths were it was a little bit harder because they were doing so well to find where the weaknesses were but I was trying to find common threads that ran between the team but that were done differently so you end up finding certain things about how and as a centre midfielder you're always looking for control and, and dominating the ball and they all did it in a slightly different way and I had to go and watch them live so I just I went I actually caught Man City Liverpool at the Etihad and then Tottenham played Tranmere in the FA Cup the next night. So I was seeing it there. I was like, oh my God, how have I not known that? I'm like 35. How have I missed that my whole career? Realised what they were doing because I had a coaching hat on. Then I went, it can't be that simple. It literally cannot be that simple. There's no way. It's got to be more, it's got to be more complex than that. So I go, okay, take a bit of time out. I didn't really take it back to our group and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. I then went and watched them other times live in the stadium against other teams because the TV just doesn't give you the perspective that you need as a coach. Watch them live again. I'm like, it is. It's literally this simple. So I remember going back in. I called all the staff from Fleetwood, including the owner, into a room and, and I drew it out on a tactics board for them. I went, look, this is how these teams do this. Man City do it with fullbacks inverting. Liverpool do it with control of the midfielders and fullbacks create the width. You know, Man City's team, wide men create the width, number eight's run on. But they're all pretty much doing the same thing. And Tottenham were doing a slightly different way. And he was changing shape at the time. Sometimes he'd play 4-2-3-1, 4-3-3. Sometimes he'd go to a back three. But Liverpool and Man City were... City moved around a little bit more tactically. Liverpool were like set in stone. You know, the team was doing the same thing. Whether the components changed or not, it didn't matter. But they were all doing, through different stages of the game, a very, very similar thing. And especially when they were attacking, they were all doing the same thing, albeit with different people. So I'm going, okay, I've found the system. i found where you want to be on the pitch. But what I had to do then is go, okay, how is this going to fit to our group? And I'd, I'd had a um, 13 out, one in. So I've got this system in my mind, but now not, I haven't got the personnel to do it. But I thought, well, if the system works, it'll work regardless of the personnel. And then that second half of the first season, I experimented and it worked. The following pre-season and off-season, I recruited for the system. We didn't get all the components because we didn't have the money to do that. In the January, I tightened it up again and, and we finished. We, we would have been promoted with that group. What about the philosophy of, of your management? And, and in particular, you, you mentioned Blackie earlier on. You know, Steve Black, for those who are not aware, passed away a couple of months ago. He was a huge influence, I know, on you. Can you give me an impression of what you learned from him and also how much you miss him. You know, so fortunate to meet him. I've been, I've been lucky, Mike, in terms of a different junction in my life, whether that was Peter Kay from Sport and Chance Clinic, who I met at a younger age. I just don't know where you would be or what you would be doing if you didn't meet these key influencers. And, and I think we all get it, whether that's a school teacher and, you know, you meet people that when you first go into work or there's these key people that who, are, who are outside your family unit that you meet who really impart wisdom on you and they, they look to mentor you and help you along in your life and maybe they see some parts of their younger personality in you and maybe they see some of the mistakes that they made when they were younger and and it's the saying, isn't it? You know, a society grows great when men plant trees, the fruit of which they will never get to eat. And these good people that I met, and, and obviously I can name three or four of them, Blackie's certainly in that category, someone who, who I met when I was 29, 30, and he just holds you to a higher standard, not by dictating to you or saying, I've done this and look how great I am, just by his mere presence. He goes, you're better than that. There's a different way of doing this. And he, and then he not only suggests that to you, he then shows you it. And he shows you it 
in very, very simplistic terms where, and then you realise, oh my God, anybody can do this. It's, this is not, you're not born with this. It, it's, anyone's capable of this if they really want to do it, if they choose to do it. And again, you know, you see, you see bits around, you know, from Blackie and he surrounds me more today than he did, you know, he's in my thoughts. His, his sayings are all over the walls, aren't Yeah, they? yeah, I've wrote, wrote them up for our boys. But, but again, when, when you meet someone like that, it, it, I'm like, I've, and I've met lots of great people who are high achievers in life. But every single person, I, I, I would my starting point for dealing with humanity would be through the lens of Steve Black and his level of care. And, and he always used to say, you know, people don't care what you know until they know how much you care. And the more and more I go through life, you know, I go, he would bob on with that. And he, he just cared about you. And, and, and the thing was, he, he was so knowledgeable. He's, you know, when he passed away, I think he left. Mark, Stephen and Emma were telling me, his kids who I'm quite close to, Black used to say he had ten to 15,000 books and he was the most well-read man I've ever known. You know, I've heard you and him converse and you stood up a lot of his stories that I thought were completely barmy, especially when it comes to like Ronnie Biggs and all that. I remember yeah, yeah. he was standing up at dinner one night and me, we thought he was pulling our leg, but he was such a well-travelled and such an interesting character and also, as I say, probably one of the most well-read men I'd ever known. And he used to say he had ten or 15,000 books and when he passed away, they found 30,000 books that he'd had. Really? And the thing with Blackie is, because he had sleep apnea and insomnia, I'm not sure he read all 30,000, but you know he'll have made a hell of a dint in them because he was an avarice reader. He had this constant thirst for knowledge, even up until the day he died. He was just constantly trying to find a better way, a more efficient way, a more effective way, you know, more solutions to make it easier for everybody, to make it more simple so everyone can understand and everyone could enjoy I can, it. I can remember him walking around with a, with a, a plastic supermarket <laughs> yeah. bag full of books, you know. The one thing he did say about you, which again has stayed with me, he said that you were strong enough to expose a soft core. In other words, you were big enough to recognise your faults and deal with them. How are you getting on with that? It's a constant work in progress. I mean, especially in this profession. I mean, you know how, how volatile this profession is and how much it is dependent on your results. You know, I always have Blackie ringing in my mind. He used to always say to me, when you come in on a Monday morning, if an alien lands off planet Sog, they shouldn't know if they observe your session, whether you've won or lost on the Saturday. He said, in a good culture, you don't know how they've got on. And last year, when it was really tough and really trying, I used to pull Mangs, who's my assistant, and I'd say, if someone came in from another planet here, would you know how we've, you know, we've been beat by Leighton Orion, 3-1, Saturday, but you'd come in and you'd listen and you'd go, you wouldn't have known how we've got on. And that gave me great salvation in the, in the turmoil we were in because we were really trying to turn around at um, a football club that had been neglected by key people at times. And as I say, for me, you know, your, your professional challenges, you can't separate the professional and the human being. You know, first time I've lived away from my missus and kids, you know, I've got four kids under the age of 10 in the house. I'm earning the least amount of money I've ever earned as a football person since my YTS days. <laughs> um, and you're in a role of service for other people. So it's, it, you can get your energy out by going and training and playing. In this job, you, you're living your life through other people. And, you know, what you would do is not necessarily the best way. You know, you have to help them find their way. So, you know, and that has its challenges. There's been times I said, I, I, done an interview with Alistair Campbell saying like, you know, with the off the field stuff that was going on, after that Stendhal court case and then the nonsense with me misses last year and the teams in turmoil were being relegated and I've got a big rebuild on, I've not got any results, the fans are on my case. And I got to the point for the first time in my life and you know, you know me well enough because you did the autobiography where I was like, is the world better off without me? Am I just a problem? Am I just constantly causing problems in the world? And it was a horrible thought. And I consider myself someone who's really resilient and been through you know, quite a few scrapes in life. And for the first time, I had this dark thought and I, I ended up phoning. I thought, I can't, it was Peter Kelly who said to me, a problem shared is a problem halved. And I thought, oh, I don't want that seed of darkness to grow. And I'd seen obviously Gary speak and I thought, I need to communicate that I my brain went there. Even if it's just half how I felt about it. And, and honestly, I got up the next day and because I'm heart on the sleeve, I phoned someone that night and went, listen, it was my dad. I went, do you want me to come round? I went, no, no, I'm absolutely fine. I just needed to tell someone because I thought I was going to die in my sleep. I had this real wave of anxiety. It was bizarre. Like, it was almost like a panic attack. I couldn't go to sleep because I had this thought of how does somebody 
go from being quite rational to deciding they want to kill themselves. Because it must happen to every sane person who becomes suicidal. And I thought it must just be a spark one day that there's no coming back from. And then I looked at the pictures of my missus in our bedroom and I thought, you need to communicate this because it's not even about you. You can take yourself away and you're going to die. It's the one guarantee we've all got. We're all going to die at some point. This is not about you. So if football's in the way of this, get out of football because you've got kids and a missus and um, you're selfish pretty much. Because football is an inherently emotional, inherently unfair and volatile business. So is, is life is life is I would say, Mike. I think football is a microcosm of life. I think life is. Mm. Yeah. It's not fair. But it's how you deal with it, isn't it? That's the key to everything. You, you know, you I've, I've, seen, I've seen you? I've seen this game drive people to the edge. Yeah. And it does. And people who are sitting in the chair like you, in your job, you can see them almost betraying themselves. So this is my brain this week. So I ended up watching for about the fifteenth time. There's a, a documentary called The Three Kings. So it's um, Samat Busby, Jock Steen, and Bill Shankly, who, you know, you might tap Fergie into that now, Sir Alex. But you have to say, from these shores, probably the three greatest managers, maybe, uh, coaching's different, I get it, greatest managers that have emerged from these shores, certainly as I've formulated my football approach. So if I go, okay, they're the best example in terms of the most successful, manage the biggest clubs, had success over a prolonged period, they're the most successful. And I'm going, well, I want to get to the top at some point. And then I go, well, hang on, if you've, there's no end, you know, it's, there's nothing to work towards. So I watch and I go, well, Samat, Munich happens, wins the European Cup 10 later, builds Man United as we know it in the modern era, could never really get away from it. You know, they never really recovered after he left. They're always pining back for him, whether it was McGuinness and all them boys. but. Left a, a le- he never escaped the success of Man United. Shanks resigned for, for whatever reason after the back of the win an FA Cup or something like that. Resigned off the back of it. Thought, you know, Liverpool get more successful. Was kind of banished from Melwood and Liverpool because he was seen as a disruptive influence. And it looks like, he, you know, his family, I think, saying they died of a broken heart in, in 81. Bill was born same day as me, 2nd of September, and died in, in, in 1981, and I was born 2nd of September, 1982. So he's the one who, and, and when I see him, and I go, he went to Workington and all the barmy places he went to before he got to Liverpool. He's the one who, now I'm farming out and grafting in the lower leagues, I go, well, if, if Shankly had to work that long and he was one of the best there's ever been, you're going to have to go and do the hard yards to let in your profession. And, and I actually, in times when I feel sorry for myself, and I go, you know, there's players who I played with in my peer group who were getting start further up the food chain and then they're getting spoon-fed loan players from all the clubs they've played at and I'm going, I'm here grafting away on my own with no... F-. But again, when I get there, it'll be even more because you've done it on your own steam. And then the other one was Jock Steen, who obviously had the success he has at Celtic. But in, in the Three Kings documentary, he dies on the sideline and that's Scotland-Wales quite, you know. So I'm going, if that's how the best get out the game, like, how do you get off? At what point do you say... No, I'm done here and I want to go and live life. I want to enjoy life and my kids and my grandkids and do I want to do football forever? You know, because even look at Roy Hodgson, football has no care about how many years you've put in. It doesn't care. Now, if you work for a bank or you might get a nice watch or a nice football, you win a European Cup, Thomas Tuchel, and you get weaker. If you win the banking equivalent of a European Cup for Barclays, you get stronger and stronger and stronger as you get into your you know, your 50s and your 60s in football. If you don't do it the next year, you get weaker. If you don't do it the next year, you're a failure. And it's a, it's a balmy industry where success in the short term doesn't necessarily give you time and space to work towards success in the long term. It almost, if anything, works against you because you've got to back it up and do more and back it up and do more. So, like, your Penkes wins the quadruple at Bayern and he gets potted for Pep Guardiola to go in. Now, where can Pep go from there? How, how can you get better than winning everything? So when I look at that, and, and as fate would have it, Fergie's on the bench next to Jock Steen. So the next one after the Free Kings for me is Sir Alex. And you go, well, Man United have not really escaped him. You know, he's still going back to the games. And I go, you know, he's obviously had the, the problems with his brain. And, and I go, oh, what kind of life is that? Like, you've worked so hard and done so many things and you can't ever escape it. You get that successful, you can't ever escape it. And honestly, I've had a chain of thought this week. I've gone, I'm retiring at 55. I'm going to put a finite amount of time. I'm only doing this job for another 15 years, like my playing career, and I want to work tirelessly towards that. 
And if even in 15 years when I'm 55, I haven't got out of coaching above League One, then that's as good as a coach I was. I'm not just going to keep flogging at dead horse. I'm going to set myself a finite amount of time and I mightn't see my kids grow up at the level I want to, but I definitely will see my grandkids go up and be there for them. I'll bring my kids into the world because I have and I'll provide for them because that's what I'm doing. I'm still providing, but I want to enjoy my grandkids and I want to enjoy the other things in life that I've worked hard for. I'm, you know, I'm a member of the Loch Lomond Golf Club. I played there twice in two years. I'm sleeping in a foreign bed in a flat in Bristol four nights a week and not sleeping next to my wife and not getting up in the morning and having breakfast with my kids four nights a week. And at some point, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to stop doing that. Now, the problem for me is I don't think I'd be productive when I had that year out with the band. My missus thought, when he gets banned, we're going to, you know, be walking hand in hand down a promenade and we'll go shopping together and we'll go for lunch together and life will be rosy. And four months after, you know, I'm in the middle of that band, she's like, will you please get out this house? Because they've all got the routine, you know, they've got the school routine, they've got the life routine, they've got the extracurricular, you know, they're going to practice, practice, practice. And all I am pretty much is a glorified Uber driver, you know, can you share the, the workload with me when I go home? And if I'm off work, I kind of get in the way. So, you know, they all go off and do the, the their everyday life. And I'm just sitting around twiddling my thumbs. Um, and it's okay for six weeks in the off-season because, you know, you get a chance to recharge your batteries and play a bit of golf and, you know, do the stuff that you've been fantasising over the, the hard, long slog of a football season. But then, like, you remember being in school and you had the six weeks holidays? Mm. And then you're quite happy to go back to school after the six weeks to see your friends and actually start learning again. And usually after about two weeks of being back at school, you're looking at the calendar again, waiting for the six weeks holidays. But the thing for me is, I think a footballer who, and you see it with, I think, um, Totty's just been in the press this week talking about a divorce. The rate of divorce for players who stop playing after the football career is ridiculous. And I think it's because we're so conditioned to be in, in the environment. Like we literally go to school and then leave school and become footballers. Like not, not all of us, but most of us. And you're institutionalized, like you're, and, and once that's taken away, you know, the devil makes work for idle hands and people go betting, gambling, people go drinking, drugging, whatever it is, but they just end up in a, in a pickle. The discipline and the structure of being a professional sportsman and being, having that routine and, it, and it, you know, feeling like it's a bit rigid at times, you realise when you come out of it how important it is just for your mental health and for your productivity as a person. And as I say to this week, I've gone, okay, what am I going to do from 40 to 50? Because I'm 40 now and I don't like accepting that, but they're the facts. 40 to 50, what things are you going to do? So I go, okay, if I stay in football for 10 years, what am I going to do? So you give yourself some targets and goals and I go, okay, let's run the other scenario that you, you don't, that, that you know, we get beat the next 10 do? games. What do you want to do in those 10 years? I want to try and achieve everything I didn't achieve on the grass myself as a player. So I'd, I'd like to achieve it with, as a team. And so that means, you know, getting to play in a World Cup or European Championship or the Champions League or, you know, top six in, in the Premier League. So I want to try, I've got unfulfilled ambition from my playing days. I know I'm swimming against my reputation from my playing days as well. And, 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 you know, I know it's going to be more difficult for me than what it maybe would be because it seems a bit, you know, it seems if the lads who have, had careers that have had it ended early through injury or and they've been coaching since they were 20, 21, 22, have learned a different way of communicating and different way of teaching that us who've been in the Coliseum and in the stadiums playing haven't quite got to. And then they get a natural advantage of, you know, they start from a eloquent coaching position instead of an effing and Jeff and dressing room position as us ex-players do. The lads who are up the pyramid, certainly the British people. So I'm delighted to see Graham Potter go in and I really hope he does well because I'm like, we need British coaches to do well. You know, obviously Frank and Stevie are grafting away at uh, their respective clubs. And, you know, I look at that and go, we all started coaching at the same point and they were much better players than me. We're all in the same boat as managers. Yeah, your playing experience gives you a different view of the world. And I, I think I'm so relieved and making the mistakes I am in League One and League Two last year and, and League One the other this year and the other years because if I'd have made the, them mistakes that and we all make them, you know, in the Premier League, you're toast. Or certainly, you know, the pressure vacuum in there just doesn't allow you to develop your skill set. So I'm mindful of playing the long game, but also I don't want that to be an infinite number. And, and as I say, turning 40, I've gone, 
I'm doing this for another 15 years, so my sell-by date's another 15 years, and then I'm getting out of it because your alternative is having a heart attack like Jock Steen, dying of a broken heart like Shankly, or never leaving the football club like Sir Matt Busby or you know, Sir Alex. And I think by putting that finite end point on it, it clarifies your thinking and it, and it makes you go, I haven't got 28 years to get after this. I've got 15 years to get right after this and get the most out of myself that I possibly can. Well, here's to the 15 years. Thanks for <laughs> if, time. If I get that far, yeah, you know, it's mainly get 15 minutes in this game, you never know, mate. As you might have guessed, it's best to book in for bed and breakfast when you ask Joe a question. But there's a lot to consider there. David, he's given himself a 15-year limit in management, but accepts he could be gone in 15 minutes. Is that management in a nutshell? <laughs> it's exactly that. No, even to think that you can be in, in, in the job as a manager for 15 years, I think that even then, whether you decide to get out or, or, you, or you stay in the job, it's still some achievement these days, especially when you look at the, you know, the the rate of managers who only have one job and never and, and never manage again after that. I think it's still some achievement, but it's possibly somebody who's in a, a good position where if it does, you know, if he wants to get out in fifteen years, he, you know, he doesn't have to worry about another management job. You know, I've been speaking a lot about this a lot with with coaches lately, and and it does even though you you know the nature of the beast. It doesn't make it right. The fact is, there's many reasons why you can lose your jobs, but in most jobs, you lose your job because you're not good at it. And that's not always the case with, with coaching and, and, and management. And, and that's possibly the hardest part uh, to, to, to take about the job. But this is the thing, though. There's still, and only speak for myself here, like, there's still like an, sort of an adolescent love of the game that keeps you drawn in all the time. And that's why we stay in it. It is, listen, it's a, it's a, it's a great business to be in. And it's, it's certainly, you know, when you stop playing and you go into coaching or management, it's still a brilliant job. Everyone would love to be inside the game. But it is, it's just, it's brutal. And no matter how much you try and come to terms with it, like I said, it, it, it still doesn't make it right. Yeah, well, what struck me also there, Lucy, was, you know, when he was speaking about living away from his family for four nights a week in a flat in Bristol, you know, that's an indication of the domestic sacrifices that are made in that profession. How do you think the family unit deals with that sort of disruption? Yeah, it's hard. And, you know, you could tell by the, the way he sort of spoke there that, you know, he's four kids is that they've got, and that's difficult for his wife. He basically takes himself away from that situation because of his job and his wife deals as best she can. Now, I've had many roles in football and far and away the worst one is being a partner to a football league manager it is really 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 stressful horrific because it's absolutely constant and and maybe because I sort of have knowledge of football I I might have felt it a little bit more during the week it's sort of nerves obviously different situation at Leeds because the owner was not normal managing up was, was very very difficult for Neil but the pressure is incredible and I never ever felt comfortable even when Neil was winning and I think that I think you, quite a lot of people don't even think about the effect that it has on the family and you know the the partners the the children and you know the hassle that they get out you know I've been re reading this week about you know families sort of going to away games and and getting hassle in the crowd you know partners of players and players it's not as bad players because it's an individual the, the manager is responsible for everything and i have to say that you know it's not an experience that i enjoyed whatsoever at the games it wasn't pleasant even if they were winning you've still got to win the next game and that's all all you're thinking and you just have constant pressure so i, I do think you know, sort of Joey's wife and looking after the kids and, and having the added pressure of just, you know, he's got to win. And if he doesn't, then it's pressure on him that obviously then goes on to the family. And it's something that, that, that I don't think people quite understand until they, they're in that situation. Mm. Well, you know, David, you were a, you know, a big part of, of Sunderland's promotion from League One last year. How transferable are the lessons, do you think, from the lower leagues? It's a good question, that. I think it's a, it's a great ground, and I know that my first coaching job was in the National League with Lincoln City, and 
and you certainly get to know the nuts and bolts of of football and the organisation of football a, a lot better. And you know, you talk about Joey spending time away from his family. That that's below the the, the Premier League, maybe the Championship. Below that, that's the real football. That's the reality of coaching and managing. Speaking to to to, to all the coaches this week, you know, you talk about not only being away from your family, but coaches actually. Sleeping in on sofas in managers' offices or at the club, and and the toll that takes on you, and it, like you said, it's not just the the manager, the coaches share their responsibility with them, and it's twenty four hours a day. You're never switching off, and even when you're going home, if you do manage to go home for a day or two, then you're still thinking about that. There's no way you can you can take yourself away from it totally, and it's that's what it is. It's it's just that's the the harsh reality of it. It's it's not all. Um, you, know, you think about. I remember watching a um, Mourinho and it with Chelsea, and like, and then he said Chelsea the second time he's coming up. He's you know he's beautiful flat in the West End of London and going to work with his fold on his arm. Like that's not the reality of coaching and, and football at most levels. Yeah, I, I can remember a couple of years or several years ago going into Gareth Ainsworth office at Wickham, and there was a big red leather sofa at the back of the office. And it transpired that his goalkeeping coach slept on that for about six months. I don't know whether that comes with the trade, uh, David. You know, we all say about um, you know the relative sanity of goalkeepers, don't we? And you know, I, I very much doubt, Lucy, that that Stephen Gerrard has to throw up a camp bed at um, you know Bodymore or wherever they are. But he is under great scrutiny in the moment, isn't it? This whole idea of former or prominent former players as managers, what are the pros and cons of that, do you think? Well, I think one of the things that I think that not many will experience is, and David talked about it earlier, when you have an ex- a full experience of hard times, losing, winning, playing well, when you have the full scope of experience then you know how to react I think that is really, really helpful when you move into coaching and into management. When you know that in certain situations, you know you've been there before, you can help your players. Whether these really, really good former players have that, they'll definitely have it now. I know Frank Lampard will definitely have that now with the the experience last year from Everton. That's probably his first experience of relegation or stress of relegation. Now, Steven Gerrard... I, I'm impressed by both of them, but but Steven Gerrard, I think he just hits everything head on. Um, I think he fronts up to the to the pressure. I did the game on Friday night. It was a dour game, but they won it, and nobody will talk about anything other than the the three points. And I think that was that was key, and it's getting his experience over to the players. I think the pros of of having a, a good former player is that when you get to the real nuts and bolts at half time of having to turn something around and having been in that situation, know what to say. I think that's what will help them and push them. And also I look at the staff that they've got around them is key as well. So you have staff around you who usually are older or have more experience than than you have coaching wise. I know Lampard's got Clement. I think Stephen's got Gary Mack, Gary McAllister, who has got lots of experience, both good and bad in management they are very helpful. You have to plug the gaps of your own knowledge with the people around you. You have to recognise what you're weak at and plug the gaps with the people around you. And and I think that that's key for, for both of those two to, to, to progress. I think what I call, I call some coaches iPad coaches who don't necessarily have that chunk of knowledge that these players will have, but also they will have other knowledge that the ex-players don't have. But that last little bit that you need to get your team over the line, I think that that's that's the advantage that those two would have. Mm -hmm. Well, managers aren't exactly butterflies being broken on the wheel, yet for all the hype associated with a job and the huge financial rewards it can bring at the highest level, they are treated like hired hands. I thought Barton's point about the fate of Jock Steen and Bill Shankly was well made. Thanks to him for his time and of course thanks to Lucy and David for their insights. Thanks also to you for your feedback. It's much appreciated. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.